Section 14 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 For the Land is Mine. Alvin Beauvais had been on hand to welcome Dr. Boughton because George Evans had sent him on a speaking tour of Albany, Rensselaer, and Columbia counties as much in the larger interests of national reform as to give thomas de vere moral backing in his fight to maintain his place in the anti-rent movement the energetic irishman had no intention of being pushed aside instead of leaving albany as the politicians hoped he would he went up into the helderbergs at once striking back at intriguers and drumming up support and subscriptions for a new anti-rent paper through the pages of Evans's Young America, he told the farmers that Booten and Harris had robbed them of the freeholder and were using it as a personal political sounding board without regard to basic anti-rent doctrine. Refusing to sell the paper to De Vere on the ground that it might be directed from the purpose for which it had been got up, they gave the editorship to Alexander G. Johnson, a law partner of one of the members of the Whig Party Policy Committee, Johnson was a friend of Ira Harris, and used to boast freely that if he had control of the anti-rent paper, he would make Whigs out of the farmers in less than two years. Benedict Arnold's De Vere called these political opportunists, and when Johnson retorted that De Vere was never pleased with anything they did, and had set out to ruin them, De Vere did not deny it. In the course of his campaign to win the farmers' support, he joined Alvin Beauvais for many of his thirty-two scheduled appearances in the manor towns. For three days they also shared the platform with Dr. Boughton, who was still pallid and weak from his long term in jail. By the end of July De Vere was back in his print shop in Albany, for, as he had once written in The Freeholder, our field is the editorial table. On the 16th of August he brought out the first issue of his own paper, The Anti-Renter, with the words from Leviticus that he had used in 1836 in his pamphlet Our Natural Rights. For the land is mine, saith the Lord, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. He promised that the new paper, unlike the freeholder, would be the forthright foe of feudalism in all its aspects. Whether overgorged and gouty in the old world, or lean and hungry in the new, wrinkled with age in the grey castles of Europe, settling down like a suckling calf on our own public lands, or scouring over New York State under the name of patroonery, you may depend I will be down upon it like a sledgehammer whenever I get a chance. He called for a strong union of all working men against the exploiting classes, May this heart become cold, this right hand palsied, when the one will not feel and the other strike home for the cause of the working men. Indeed, our greatest object shall be to unite the farmer, the laborer, and the mechanic in one solid phalanx. Their interests are the same. Their hearts and their votes should be united. Toward this end, De Vere started a second paper, The Albany Workman, aimed at the disgruntled laborers of the pasture and the docks, but it did not last more than a few weeks. Meanwhile, the young schoolteacher Alvin Beauvais was proving a good ambassador for both De Vere and the national reformers. He was far more cautious than either Evans or De Vere. 
for he knew from his own rural background that the farmers were not by nature radical. He never asked more of them than he knew they would willingly do, and the resolution he offered at every meeting was temperate enough to be adopted later in part as government policy. Resolved that we are in favor of freedom of the public lands to actual settlers, with the quantity limited forever. His letters to George Evans from the anti-rent towns were filled with careful observation, understanding, humor, and common sense. On August 3rd he had written from Rensselaerville, I have fairly opened the campaign in the Helderbergs, and if I do not misjudge the signs of the times, it is going to tell in favor of the national movement. In these parts I have heard but one expression of the farmers toward the great measure for which we are contending. From the first to the last with whom I have talked, they are in favor of the freedom of the public lands. The first impression, I know, is the most favorable, but the readers of Young America must understand that they are not always to receive so cheering an account of my labors in these regions, for this, many must know, is far ahead of most sections of the oppressed counties in radical doctrine. Agrarianism is not here quite so much used to frighten children with, and the old women of both sexes, as in other parts. But there were, and perhaps are yet, some few even here, who turn a little ghostly at the mention of the awful word. No matter, the hearts of our friends were cheered by the elucidation under this head, and the terror of agrarianism is pretty much departed from Rensselaerville. I undertake to say that the anti-renter who will not set his face like flint against the recurrence of land monopoly in the West does not deserve success in his own behalf, that the national reformer who will not go heart and soul for the upheaval of the same abominable monopoly here is but a poor apology for a reformer after all. Beauvais attended a meeting in Albany on August 7th, at which candidates for the November election were discussed. De Vere was there, and also Big and Little Thunder. Beauvais wrote of the two released prisoners, Both are weak, wan and emaciated, Belden to the last degree, and it is supposed that the treatment he received at the Hudson jail, such as I did not suppose was inflicted on any human being this side of the Empire of Morocco, had thrown him into hopeless consumption. I do not write this for effect, I write nothing for effect, but I greatly fear the odious prison is killed Belden. He is a young man, not more than twenty-two, I should say, and he assures me he was a perfectly sound man at the time of his incarceration. God knows he is far enough from it now. The Albany Conference was a real success, in Beauvais' estimation, it was a most intelligent and determined body of men, and for the first time, except in our own meetings in New York, I heard the name of anti-rent spoken with respect and conscious pride. Beauvais was delighted to find that de Vere's loss of the editorial post with the freeholder had not affected the farmers' regard for him. They would still stand by him to the last gasp, and so they ought, for he is worthy." Back in Rensselaerville, on August 10th, after having addressed seven meetings in seven days, Beauvais wrote again to Evans in New York City. He found the village of Rensselaerville rather too sanctimonious. The people smothered down their beard with a good deal of self-complacency, and rather thought we could not have one of their churches. 
Anti-rent wasn't so bad, but agrarianism, oh, that mustn't be tolerated upon any consideration. Well, now we can have any church they have got, certainly, but we won't. His letter continued. All things look charming in the Helderberg country politically, but physically, bless me, it looks as parched and dead as if the destructive Samuel had passed over it. The drought never was so biting within the memory of the oldest inhabitants. Beds of streams are destitute of water. Meadow and pasture are dry as stubble. All nature stands agape for water. So far as my knowledge extends, this seems to be the case in all parts of the county. And still I believe there is a tolerably fair yield of most kinds of agricultural products. Just about here, decidedly the best crop raised this year, though others are good, is that of anti-rent. This probably never was in any former season more flourishing. Wherever I go I meet the most cordial feelings. National reform is received with open arms. The great principle of limiting individual domain over land, after much of that confused and fragmentary discussion which always precedes the audible utterances of a momentous truth, is very generally adopted in that part of Albany County. In seven meetings, not a voice or a hand has been raised against it. On the contrary, the universal expression, from the ladies and all, is affirmation. While speaking at Smith's Corners, near Rensselaerville, Beauvais saw his first Calico Indians. A celebrated chief called Yellow Jacket was understood to be in command, and about the strangest show I ever witnessed. Cooper might do it justice, perhaps, but I can't, and therefore I shan't try. Of the forty disguises, no two bore the least resemblance to each other. The chief made a speech full of fine sense, declaring the ability and the determination of the Indians to watch over and protect the people of these counties, so long as present circumstances exist, penal laws to the contrary notwithstanding. After the speech, about eleven o'clock, the children of the forest returned amid whoops and yells and blowing of horns, on horseback, to the rocky mountains from whence they came. On August 17th, when Beauvais wrote from New Scotland that he was staying over to attend a sheriff's sale, he gave some amusing sidelights on anti-rent methods. This is a mountainous, broken country, divided by gulfs, dark passes, and deep ravines, and you should know that it is one of the most perverse parts of the United States for officers bearing declarations, writs of ejectment, etc., to travel in. They rarely meet with any irreparable accident, but the moderate-sized stone in the road, and there's enough of them, no doubt of it, over which citizens' carriages will pass harmlessly, is almost sure to upset a sheriff and break his thills, perhaps. Accidents of this kind are said to have been quite common up here in the time past. Indeed, I passed a spot lately where something of this kind happened not very long ago. The circumstances were related to me by a veteran as we rode along. The sheriff had carefully tied his horse, as he supposed, to the fence, and had gone into the lots to drive off a flock of sheep. Suddenly a gust of wind arose, tipped over his carriage with a terrible crash, frightening his horse, and causing him to swear prodigiously. Well, a little boy, who was just passing along with a basin of salt in his hand, taking fright, as was natural at such strange sights, 
and being greatly shocked by the impiety of the sheriff, ran with all the might he had in him. And the sheep, as sheep will do, attracted by the salt, ran after him. Before the sheriff got his broken vehicle on its legs again, of course boy, sheep, and all had disappeared, so there was nothing left for him to do but limp his bootless way back to Albany. It is a pity, but it can't be helped that I know of. Furious winds will upset sheriff's carriages, especially up this way. Little boys will be afraid sometimes and run away. Sheep like salt in a moderate degree, and we must make the best of it. The good old custom, which so generally obtains among the farmers elsewhere, of blowing tin horns for dinner, is here an obsolete idea. The delicate instrument is now only used in these parts on great occasions of state, such as the grand entry of the Sheriff of Albany, and perhaps the same honor is paid to one of his inferiors. When the august minister of the law appears on Capitol Hill, taking his course toward the setting sun, the first farmer, as in duty bound, sounds his horn. Straightway then, family after family, hamlet after hamlet, and village after village, take up the sound, and throw it forward until it climbs the Helderberg, sweeps through the valleys beyond the passes, on to the borders of Schenectady, Schoharie, and Green. For a minute every hill and vale and quiet recess in the twenty-four-mile square resound with delectable music of the tin horn. Then all is silent as the grave. The hammer is dropped on the anvil, the scythe in the field, the plough in the furrow, and all is busy preparation to honour the approach of the sheriff. Soon again a single horn is heard. It indicates the road by which this gentleman proceeds. He passes another farmhouse, and the eternal horn rings forth his progress. The sale that Bove witnessed was Sheriff Batterman's third attempt to sell Conrad Mathias's stock, to satisfy Van Rensselaer's claims. But as he later described it for George Evans and the readers of Young America, it was a fairly tame affair. The people came in great numbers, the sheriff came, but the horses, the cows, and the sheep did not come. In short, it was a sale whereat nothing was sold. No obstruction, no indignity of any kind was offered to the officers. They patrolled for two hours or so in search of the horses, etc., which were advertised for sale. But so especially dry was it, we have had a beautiful rain since, that the animals had probably wandered off in quest of water or more pleasant pasturage. The fates were adverse, the fun was spoiled, the sheriff drove away his own team and nothing more, the crowd slowly closed up the passage after him, and all was still. No, all was not quite still. The thirty or forty women on the lawn commenced to laugh, cackle, and make other feminine noises, indicating, I should say, a rather dislike for Sheriff Batterman and his companions. The sheriff is a very good-looking man himself, but he is on the shady side of forty and married, and not satisfied with this demonstration of ill-will, they called out to the men, "'Why don't you cheer?' But it wouldn't do. They answered only by a sullen shake of the head, and a determined, "'Not a word, not a word.' Up to this time I was a silent spectator of the scene, had witnessed the passive resistance of the people, 
like that which the atmosphere offers to a cannon-ball, giving way when it was pushed aside and closing in immediately after, and I was glad that it was so. But now I was called upon to provide part of the entertainment. Barn doors were thrown open, men and women arranged themselves around, sitting, kneeling, standing on the floor and earth outside, clinging to the margin of the haymow, suspended from every beam and pin hanging all silent there and still they waited for this individual to open his mouth in speech to my knowledge none of the unrivalled corps was present wherefore i must be content that what was then spoken on the mountain top is never destined to reach the swarming world below the ever-recurring resolution was passed patriotic songs were sung hope sat on every countenance joy beat in every heart and we went on our several ways. The Helderberg anti-renters were the only ones who were actually successful in resisting without employing the Indians. When bidders came from the city, the tenants sometimes kept the bidding going all afternoon and into the night, up to several thousand dollars for a single cow, until the sheriff had to give up trying to conclude the bidding and called off the sale from exhaustion or if a sale was completed the city buyer heading out of the mountains would hear unearthly voices and the animal would be frightened and stampeded into escape in some instances the cow was shot from ambush while being led away occasionally women took part once as batterman's horses jogged along in the mountain coolness bound from albany into the hills beyond rensselaerville two women appeared one mounted and the other on foot. They followed him, alternately blowing tin horns vigorously, and pouring out the vilest abuse imaginable. Batterman pretended not to notice them, but their signal was heard, and as usual he had his journey for his pains. He finds it impossible in almost every case to serve a declaration. The sharp twang of the warning horn precedes him, and ere he arrives the birds are either flown or are safely locked within their domestic castles. Beauvais's next destination was the anti-rent towns of the East Manor. In a letter from Dr. Boughton's home he furnished vivid glimpses of the country around Alps and of Big Thunder himself. This is the centre of Rensselaer County, a forbidding alpine region, but inhabited by a people generous, hospitable, and patriotic. Here reside the two most notable individuals, in some respects, of the present time, perhaps, the famous Hudson prisoners of frightful name. Boughton is nearly restored, Belden far otherwise. And now, seeing that such folios of lies have been printed about Boughton, representing him as every description of villain from the callous murderer down through intermediate grades to the weak skulking and treacherous coward i will give my impression of him from an intimacy of three days duration i should say he is a cultivated man of fair natural abilities having the domestic and social affections large with a considerable shade of generous romance pervading the whole character there is nothing of the thunderer in his appearance. His stature is middling, his voice mild and musical, his eloquence touching and persuasive. He has been the object of excited prejudices of a senseless, tyrannical mob, 
and of a more senseless tyrannical corps of public officers all of whom will live to discover and repent them of their wicked injustice but can a lifelong repentance in dust and ashes can a thousand pilgrimages to holy sepulchres raise the dead how then shall they atone for the inhuman torturing inch by inch murder of belden that's the question can they raise the innocent dead while in the east manor beauvais visited burton thomas at west sandlake a nice little country village rather elite of country villages about here built upon a small plain surmounted by a gay irregular amphitheatre of hills covered with cultivation or wild waving boskage and possessed i am told of a considerable degree of refinement at east sandlake beauvais wrote to evans i made the acquaintance of that terrible man rance coyle who is indicted at troy for various and grievous offences against the laws as an indian chief under the name of red jacket he is a glass-blower by trade has notwithstanding the adverse circumstances with which from the first he has been surrounded attained a considerable degree of cultivation has collected about him a library of rather remarkable books for a man in his position and spends his hours of recreation from physical labor in intellectual pursuits how dangerous to sheriffs he may be i know not but he does not look precisely like the man who shall shortly put on the stripes of the penitentiary the speaking tour ended when beauvais had to return to new york city to report to the national reformers on september tenth by that time serious trouble had broken out in schoharie and delaware counties and dr boughton was no longer a free man yet beauvais felt that the situation as a whole was encouraging he had travelled several hundred miles through the anti-rent districts and at all places had been hospitably received he was however strengthened in his conviction that the farmers were not generally radicals who had dug deep into the science of political economy when their chains began to gall they determined to throw them off but as might be expected in the incipiency of such a movement their measures were fragmentary and when something more radical was proposed as might be expected their leaders held back fearing in some cases that radical measures might interfere with their own project of overthrowing the patroons his report summed up the result of my experience in these counties is a conviction that the anti-rent cause is destined to be a most triumphant success in seven counties their union is perfect and there is no such thing as a whig or democrat among them they are all anti-renters their banner is equal rights and under it they will not go back but advance they are strong enough to hold the balance of power and force the attention of the people to a consideration of their grievances and the feudal titles they are determined to alter modify or abolish they are too completely organized to think of giving way and their movement in connection with that of the national reformers will yet redeem the condition of labor in this country End of section 14 recording by maria casper